0: This is episode 32 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Benrose. Today's show is the 33rd episode of Angry Tech News. Many of you in the No Agenda community know what that means. If you don't, I have no intention of explaining it. Today's show is also kind of rant and opinion heavy. There's a couple topics that, well, let's be honest, I've got a lot to bitch about. If that's not your thing, well, then why are you even listening to this podcast? We've got two big stories today of Silicon Valley corporations getting rudely awakened by unwelcome reality. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it's Twitter and Netflix. We've also got some wild speculation, completely unqualified stock market analysis, bitching about bad UI, bad privacy policies, bad actors on social media, and as always, my bi-weekly dumping on electric vehicles. Stick around. From the sky is falling department, by far the biggest story of the week was Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter. It had front page articles on every one of my news sources. Trying to read Mastodon yesterday was wall-to-wall memes about it, and it was also the subject of millions of, well, tweets. Suffice it to say, the topic is trending. For real, not the fake type of trending where Twitter makes takes money to, you know what, never mind. Now, I loathe to cover any story that gets this big. It means wading through articles full of contradictory facts, logical analysis at a fourth grade level, and opinions that should have been kept to themselves. It's extremely hard to tell what's true or not with these kind of stories, not least because when every single blog on the internet writes about the same thing, it creates a sort of distributed Google bomb that floods search indexes and makes it nearly impossible to find information that's more than 24 hours old. But I did receive... Two separate requests to cover this story, which, judging by donations, is nearly 20% of the people who listen to this show. After all, you are the producers of Angry Tech News, and you are entitled to my opinion. First, let's lay down some facts. On April 4th, Elon Musk bought up 9% of Twitter. The next day, the company offered him a position on their board of directors, which Musk turned down, the presumptive reason for which is a shareholder bylaw that says that no board member may own more than 15% of the company. It's not clear to me whether that bylaw already existed or if it was enacted in response to Musk's purchase, which is kind of what I was talking about when I said they were whitewashing the search indexes. A week or so later, Musk instead came back with an offer to buy the whole company outright for $44 billion, not exactly couch change even for the world's richest person. The Twitter board deliberated for a while and reportedly toyed with a poison pill idea before finally deciding to accept the offer. So assuming the purchase passes regulatory muster in a shareholder vote, shareholders will get $54 for each share of stock they own. Then the company will be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange and be wholly and privately owned by one man. Of course, the details of the deal are not what everyone's talking about. The vast majority of tech blogs splooge over this deal has been about what Musk is going to do with the service once he owns it. One thing that seems very likely, Musk, a self-described free speech absolutist who has long been outspoken on Twitter about Twitter's crimes against freedom of speech, will very likely roll back much of the culture of censorship that has grown up around the platform and turned it into a progressive echo chamber where everyone agrees. Leftist chicken littles claim that if you stop censoring, oh, they call it moderating, the site will quickly turn into a cesspool full of hate speech, intolerance and threats of violence, and that ideas will be suppressed because people will be too afraid to speak their mind, lest somebody say something mean in response. Those who claim this, of course, have no problem with cesspools full of hate, intolerance and threats of violence as long as it's directed at people they don't like and they want ideas suppressed by a chilling effect as long as it's ideas they disagree with. It's hard to manifest, therefore, any sympathy for someone like this when this is exactly what Twitter already looks like if your political opinions happen to sit anywhere to the right of Vladimir Lenin. All except the part about people saying mean things, that is, the Sticks and Stones generation is not particularly bothered by words, which is why Twitter has instead banned them for wrongthink, something Elon has has promised never to do. And so... It seems very likely that we'll see a decrease in bans, shadow bans, and so-called fact-checking on the platform. How you feel about this depends largely on whether or not you're a decent human being. One group that seems to be disproportionately against the idea is Twitter users. You can find thousands and thousands of tweets with variations on the theme of, if Elon buys Twitter, I'm canceling my account, terms which I think are perfectly acceptable. In the unlikely event that those people follow through with their threats, it can only raise the aggregate maturity level of the platform. According to one poll I spotted, unsourced, but the numbers are in line with my preconceived biases, so I'll go with it, said that over 80% of the tweets in response to this purchase were against it. The only real conclusion I can draw from this, though, is that Twitter's banhammer isn't very good if 20% of users can still think for themselves. Another group that is heavily against the acquisition is Twitter's employees. Again, no big surprise. Twitter's workplace, like many in Silicon Valley, California, is a monoculture. In the 2020 election, for example, more than 98% of donations through their campaign contribution push went to Democrats. Any significant change on the platform will therefore likely have to start with an employee purge. If I were in Musk's place, I'd probably start with the ones who have very publicly denounced the sale and then threatened to leave, or worse, to sabotage the platform. I know that corporate America has changed a bit since I was a cog in the big machine, but that shit is, Trey, unprofessional. You can talk trash about your own company and leadership in private, but airing dirty laundry out in public is a real professional impropriety from where I stand. One thing the detractors have right is that freedom of speech is not brand safe with today's woke but risk-averse corporations. Changing the culture of censorship could make the platform much less attractive to advertisers as they suddenly find their ads displayed on the same page as something decidedly non-PC. This is an existential conundrum, I think, and I don't have the solution. Properties that make their business model by advertisers are necessarily slaves to those advertisers. If Musk really wants to turn the platform into a bastion of free speech, I don't see how that's compatible with an ad-based revenue model. Beyond the free speech angle, it seems that Elon also has other big plans for the platform. Musk, himself a prolific tweeter with underdeveloped shut-up skills, has already given some hint to his intentions. Making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeat the spam bots, and authenticating all humans, he tweeted. Now, I've been on the Internet since almost its inception. I've administered a BBS, a FidoNet node, countless web forums and IRC chat rooms, and an Internet radio station. And in all that time, nobody has ever found a way to defeat spam. You can slow it down with technological tricks and regex filters, a precursor to the AI Elon proposes. But the point on the dial where you start unacceptably blocking legitimate traffic always comes before you can get all the unwanted traffic. It is a constant that there are more people trying to break your system than trying to prop it up. And if the worst they can do is a few unwanted messages, you're doing all right. The authenticate all humans angle, though, that one I find pretty ominous. Musk is a known and self-described transhumanist. He owns a startup that is looking for a way to embed computer chips and electrical mesh inside of a human brain. He also owns an automobile company that sells you a smartphone with four wheels, a really big battery and forced automatic updates. Well, correction, they sell a license to that car because they can turn it off remotely, which means you don't own it. There is no way on earth or above or below that I'm going to let a Silicon Valley company upload automatic updates into my brain. If that means missing out on the latest new and improved electronically augmented ADD fad, so be it. I'm not sure whether the purchase of Twitter is ultimately going to prove good or bad for Twitter or for the rest of society. Considering how terrible modern Twitter has become, there's a lot more places to go up or than down, but it's obviously a big deal. The conservatives and free speech enthusiasts in my Mastodon timeline have not shut up about the story for three days. Many of them are acting like Musk is the second coming of J.C., Likewise, the progressives on Twitter and elsewhere are acting like he's the Antichrist, come to destroy our world. I think he's a man, a technology enthusiast with brilliant yet kooky ideas and enough money to try them all out on a whim. He wants to do everything that pops into his head, and he does. Some of it will fail, some of it will change history. I can only hope that he cures cancer or solves world hunger before he invents Skynet. (laughs) From the rolling bricks department, as long as we're on the topic, let me ask you, what is a reasonable amount of time for a company to support a product they sell, not just a warranty where they offer a free replacement to cover manufacturing defects, but to be able to sell spare parts or replacement parts for any bits that are highly customized, maybe or patented bits that can wear out. The number seems to go up with how how much you pay for it and how long it's expected to last. Toys, a year or two. Small appliances, a few years. Furniture, several years, sure. Software, uh, well, enterprise software can be supported for a decade or more, but open source might be measured in months or minutes. What if it's the most valuable asset you own? Well, the second most valuable if you own a house. What if it's a $40,000 piece of hardware that's critical for your daily life, your job, and your ability to provide for your family? you might expect the company that sold it to you to at least provide spare parts for the conceivable life of the product. Not so for the Chevy Spark EV. A writer for EVResource.com recently confirmed with an anonymous GM district executive that they will no longer provide replacement battery packs for the cars. Not for warranty, not for replacement, not for repair. GM has not officially responded on this issue. Battery packs for electric vehicles tend to be highly customized, usually for one model, a car, or a small handful from the same manufacturer. They also tend to be covered by numerous patents. Both of these things mean that aftermarket EV batteries are in common. And given how battery packs are one of the first big critical systems to fail on an EV, don't count on finding one in a junkyard. For a car like the Spark, one of those car models that was created only so the company could say they created an EV to satisfy some woke environmental policy and which only sold about 10,000 units, the chance is almost nil. What all of this means is that if you have a Chevy Spark EV and the battery pack fails, your car is a brick, not repairable, an expensive yard ornament, resale value, scrap. If your car does happen to be under warranty, GM might helpfully offer to buy it back and For its used value, and offer to apply that amount toward the purchase price of a brand new GM vehicle. If you didn't happen to be in the market for a new vehicle because, oh, I don't know, the economy's in the crapper, then I guess it sucks to be you. Either way, you're out one commute mobile. Let me put it to you another hypothetical question. What is a reasonable age to get rid of a car? Five years? Ten? Most cars can last quite a long time with regular maintenance. I bought my current GM car, new, in 2001. And sure, I've had to replace a few bits along the way, but none of the major really important ones, and it's still running great 21 years later and 250,000 miles on. The Spark EV sold from 2013 to 2016. The newest ones are now six years old. The main reason that politicians always give for trying to force us all to electric vehicles is because we have to save the environment. But where's the benefit if you have to scrap an EV battery every few years, especially knowing that they're unrecyclable, as we learned in ATN number 22 back in February? What's the environmental impact of bricking an entire car? If I knew nothing at all about rare earth metals, strip mining, or industrial pollutants, I could still figure out that building the exact same car three times uses more resources than simply maintaining one for 20 years. And where's your environmental high ground when a family can't afford to buy a brand new $30,000 Chevy Bolt EV to replace the spark they should have been able to repair, so instead they go and buy a used gas-powered car? How's that for environmental? Another internal combustion engine on the road. All those horrible pollutants you were so afraid of, the whole reason you concocted ass-backward legislation to force companies like GM to sell a car that they had no intention of supporting, that terrible, terrible CO2 that ruins the environment by making plants grow faster is now going to be put right back into the air by that awful polluting gas engine you forced someone into. Although, now that I think about it, didn't the Bolt just have a recall too? Battery fires, if I recall. I guess when compared with an EV battery fire, that internal combustion engine starts looking pretty clean. And from the old yeller department, Netflix had a bad week last week. Last Tuesday, the company released its quarterly earnings report, which showed a loss of 200,000 subscribers, the first drop in company history. At the same time, CEO Reed Hastings started to discuss plans to include an ad-based tier to the service. Netflix shares closed down 25% on Tuesday and a further 35% on Wednesday for more than a 60% drop from a year ago. Several analysts also downgraded the stock from buy to sell. That's basically all the facts of this story. Most everything else I found in articles and blogs is analysis and speculation. I figure I may as well get my own opinion out there, lest you start being concerned that I don't have one. On my social media feed, the usual conservative hyenas are chanting go woke, go broke like it's some kind of prophecy. There's certainly some truth to it, but the issue is certainly more complex. Controversial woke titles like Cuties or Dear White People or that weird upcoming show about a pregnant man certainly aren't helping their reputation for quality content with the less progressive viewers. And that stunt their woke employees pulled last year when the Dave Chappelle special came out. Publicly protesting in the office against their own company certainly made Netflix leadership look really weak. Here's a free tip to any CEOs who don't want to look like pathetic weaklings as a woke mob of retards starts driving your company into the ground. Put out a company-wide survey. On this survey, one of the questions should ask employees to provide their preferred pronouns. Fire anybody who answers that question. So anyway, the stock market is cluing into the fact that Netflix has entered a death spiral. That's a corporate state where a company's business model isn't working anymore and needs to adapt. They start losing customers, but they can't change the business model because it would cost them their established business. So instead, they raise prices to make up for lost revenues and cut service quality to reduce costs, which causes them to lose more unsatisfied customers and so on, bleeding customers and money until eventually all that's left over is the name. Netflix has a long way to the bottom of this spiral, and it's possible they could still pull out of it with some real innovation. But do not doubt that they've entered it. Let's see, what could have contributed to this? Well, first off, they can't help constantly reminding people that they're subscribed to the service. In the last quarter, Netflix has raised their prices now to $15 or $20 a month more than any other service, threatened to ban people who share passwords, and talked about introducing ads. To be clear, every single time you make people think about the value proposition your service offers, they come to a decision point. Is this really worth it to keep paying you? No big deal if your offering is valuable, they will probably keep paying you. But if your offer isn't valuable, then you're coasting on inertia, especially if every announcement makes the value worse. The last thing you want to do is make people analyze that value proposition, because every time you do, a bunch of them are going to look at this and go, eh, I don't need it. They cancel. And as any corporate strategist can tell you, it's a lot easier to lose customers than to acquire them. Netflix also has a lot more competition now than ever in their history. Disney, HBO, CBS, Amazon, all have introduced cheaper services with big-name exclusives. For a while, Netflix won on no ads in a deeper catalog, but now they're talking about introducing ads, and Netflix's back catalog is starting to really suck. I mean, I'm a connoisseur of B-movies. I use them as mindless noise while I'm coding because they don't have a plot worth wasting my attention on, but I've seen cat videos with better characters, plot, and effects than some of this trash. And while we're talking about a deep back catalog and no ads, let's look at Netflix's biggest and oldest competitor, piracy. I've got to give Netflix credit. For a while, they actually brought enough convenience and value to significantly reduce piracy, a feat I would never have thought possible. It was simply more convenient for several years to pay Netflix than to pirate the shows. But Netflix has not been keeping up on innovation. For one thing, they're still using the same basic annoying UI from 2014 with autoplay previews, over-stylized box art where a show title should be, and the laggy JavaScript-heavy Web 2.0 hovering mechanic that means there is literally nowhere you can put your mouse cursor on the page without some obnoxious thing expanding all over the titles you're browsing. I mean, pirate sites may not always be this colorful, but at least you can read the titles at a glance. Not to mention another thing pirate sites have over Netflix— They never cancel a show because some arbitrary contract is up. Nothing drives home better the idea that you do not own content than your service just arbitrarily deleting something from their index that you wanted to watch. But hey, the real value of Netflix isn't their rented back catalog, is it? It's the originals. Sure, some are crap, but others are pretty good. And you've got to appreciate a company that lets the creative people be creative, as long as they're making money, that is. Netflix has a terrible habit of letting a show spend a season building up momentum, developing interesting characters, opening complex and intertwined plot lines, and then suddenly canceling the show because its numbers weren't high enough. Possibly worse, they also love taking a show that has a well-defined and complete story arc that wraps up in a season, and then forcing them to staple on another season because it made money. Stranger Things, anyone? Oh, And one thing I'm really sure helped those subscriber numbers was blocking all customers in an entire country for no reason other than to virtue signal that you participated in a political dick measuring contest between Vladimir Putin and a corrupt dementia patient. Most of these signs were there in 2019 before COVID, but for the next two years, subscriber numbers stayed up artificially boosted while people were locked inside their houses. But I think the execs knew even then that the death spiral had begun. They knew their content quality was failing. Why else would you need to remove reviews, star ratings, and all the other signals that let customers filter good contents from bad, unless you knew that most of the content was bad? I don't want you to think that I hate Netflix for all this. I think the company used to be incredibly innovative. Sending DVDs by mail with no late fees was a stroke of genius. They destroyed the video rental market with that one move. Then, they managed to transition to a streaming model at exactly the right time as bandwidth was becoming ubiquitous. Both moves gave them a commanding lead in the industry, which they benefited from. But competition has caught up, and Netflix doesn't have another big idea coming up. If they did, they wouldn't be talking about cracking down on password sharing or adding ads to their shows. They'd be bringing out the idea and making everybody wow. All good things must come to an end. Maybe it's time to talk about not renewing them for another season. Thanks go out today to Sean McCune and Rachel Zimmerman, who produced this episode of the Angry Tech News podcast, as well as generous boosts from Servo and Abel Kirby, who streamed Satoshis using Podcast 2.0 enabled apps, despite the fact that I don't mention newpodcastapps.com nearly often enough. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen. But we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some back. Go to AngryTechNews.com and click the Donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $3, $33, or $133. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News. With the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry. Come on, you guys. There it is, right there in front of you the whole time. You're dereferencing a null pointer. Open your eyes.